great offers and a great podcast? What a day! Thank you, sponsors. We appreciate it. This is an ICRT podcast. We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio today by Ross Feingold. Good evening. And from Kaohsiung by Michael Smith. Good evening. Tonight we'll be discussing controversy surrounding a visit to China this week by the KMT's vice chairman. Questions and allegations about and some answers concerning the government's funding for purchases of coronavirus vaccines, the launch of the government's new Ministry of Digital Affairs, and the Michelin Guide and its Bib Gourmand Guide going south, and including Taiwanan and Kaohsiung for the first time this year. But we'll begin with the killing of two police officers in Tainan on Monday in an incident that has led to questions and controversy and left the government scrambling to make amendments to current laws and regulations. The suspect was arrested early Tuesday morning, 17 hours after he stabbed the two officers to death in Tainan's Annan district. Now, the Tainan City's Criminal Investigation Corps says the arrest involved 68 officers, some of whom, in fact, followed the coach that the suspect was on all the way from Kaohsiung to Shinzu in five police vehicles. Prosecutors say autopsies show that one of the police officers was stabbed 17 times while the other was stabbed 38 times. And the Tainan District Court denied bail to the suspect on Wednesday and ordered him detained on charges of homicide, robbery and the illegal use of firearms and knives. Now the Ministry of Justice says it plans to propose legal amendments to further limit the types of offenders eligible for transfer to minimum security prisons. Now that statement came after it was revealed that the suspect had absconded from the Mingde Minim Security Prison after failing to return from day release. Now, the Justice Minister told reporters that the suspect was allowed to return home in March the first time and then allowed to return home on August the 13th but he never returned to the prison that time and the Justice Minister said that the prison followed standard operating procedures notifying the man's family members that he'd gone missing and also asking the Tainan District Prosecutor's Office to locate him. However the Justice Minister went on to say that the problem of minimum security prison inmates absconding or overstaying their temporary release urgently needs to be addressed and the planned draft bill will limit the types of inmates eligible for transfer to such prisons. Meanwhile, the Cabinet this week called on lawmakers to prioritise the review of proposed amendments that seek to relax rules governing the use of firearms by police officers. Now, according to Deputy Interior Minister Chen Zongyen, it's hoped that the amendment to the Act governing the use of police weapons will clear the legislature when the next legislative session opens in September. Now, the amendment was in fact approved by the Cabinet in May of 2020, and it completed its first reading of the legislature that same year. Now, that policy seeks to free police from what they're calling unnecessary constraints in situations that require a use of force. It also increases the number of situations in which police officers can use firearms and introduces an investigative mechanism and state compensation. Now the state compensation clause has been included due to it being necessary basically if police use force and cause damage to property or bodily harm. Now, another issue that came up this week due to the stabbing of the police officers was whether, well, local television news channels should either blur suspects' faces or keep them open for everyone to see. So, Ross, a lot to digest there, but the government obviously scrambling to change laws, laws that could have been changed some time ago. It's the usual response to this kind of incident uh, or by analogy, a, a murder of civilians or some spike in 
in crime that, that politicians and uh, legislators uh, will rush to say, oh, we better change that law. We'll strengthen that law. We'll increase the fine. You know, we're going to increase the fine for murdering someone. Or uh, in this case, we'll, we'll talk about relaxing restrictions on, on police use of force. In fact, uh, those of us who have watched uh, the news for many years in Taiwan or are familiar with uh, police operations in Taiwan will know that actually uh, the police, uh, although I would say frequently discharge their weapons here in Taiwan, uh, but but they do so rather liberally. Uh, Every uh, few months, there there always seems to be a story about a traffic stop going wrong or where the vehicle didn't stop and the police open fire. Uh, by way of example, uh, so I, I would I would dispute uh, the, the, that the solution to this incident or a proper response is to simply uh, relax the restrictions on on police use of force. I, I think the police uh, already have the ability to use force when they deem it necessary to do so. So that actually goes to what the important issue in this incident which is a tragedy, and of course our condolences to the, the families and, and the colleagues of the deceased officers. Uh, but but the, the issue that is present here and often comes up in these situations appears to be the lack of training. Uh, and we often see that with frontline police, the, the men and women who work in, in the precincts, so the people who are not part of the more specialized units, uh, what in other countries would broadly be called SWAT units, which Taiwan has. And actually, those, the, the officers in those units, their skills have improved dramatically in the last couple of decades after, I, I'm sure, uh, Gavin and Michael, you guys remember back in the late 90s and early 2000s, there were a number of uh, uh, long-distance bus hijacking, kidnapping incidents, standoffs, where the police seemed to be very bad at these kinds of hostage situations. Uh, but, 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 or we go back to the incident uh, 1997 with, with the, the criminals on the run who eventually uh, held hostage the South African diplomat and his family, where the police also seemed rather incompetent. Uh, but but, but the, the, again, the specialized units have improved, but where the problem seems to be is with the frontline units and, and handling interactions with the public that might get violent and being able to assess that and being able to protect themselves. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, we're not talking about that. We're talking about uh, what appears to be cosmetic solutions. Yes, uh, agree that uh, um, with the condolences to the family, they uh, they have every right to be both uh, very saddened and uh, angry. But uh, we do have a tendency, as Ross points out, to reflexively jump towards um, law solutions or things that perhaps are are maybe should be looked at and uh, we could consider it, but are not necessarily the the, the core issue. So this suspect, I guess we still have to call him that technically, he was um, sentenced to eight years and four months in prison for robbing two convenience stores with a essentially a BB gun. He displayed decent behavior and in December of last year he got this transfer to a prison where you are allowed to take uh, occasional visits. Many countries around the world do allow these sort of uh, supervised release 
And um, uh, it's debatable whether or not uh, this is a good idea, but many criminal justice experts believe that this is a good way of helping criminals transition and understand uh, why they should, uh, you know, perhaps not uh, commit crimes. So that, that's, that's the issue of a separate issue. We, we, we can look at that. But I agree completely with Ross that the number one issue here is the training. There were two police officers. One of them was not armed with a firearm. He was a traffic officer. The second did have a firearm. And when they went to this suspect, they were there because he had, uh, he was spotted on a stolen motorcycle, or at least reported to be on a stolen motorcycle. So this wasn't a random traffic stop. They knew that the individual that they were approaching was someone who was, if nothing else, a motorcycle thief. So when they got close enough to this person, the officer with the uh, firearm should have stayed far enough away to be able to handle something that came up. So this person, this suspect, he he was in the armed forces. He had close combat fighting training, and he was a military police officer until 1998. He was, uh, this is like, unfortunately, kind of a a one one in a million case where he, he really had the skills to be able to take on even armed officers. But if the one officer had been trained properly and knew what he was doing to be far enough away from the situation as the other one approached, then when the knife came out, um, he would have been in a situation to perhaps do something about it. So this is training. And in general, we need to, in my opinion, train a lot of officers to be a bit more, I guess uh, the word I'm, uh, I'm going to use is assertive. Uh, many times police officers in Taiwan just do not give the appearance of, of, of having authority. And because of that, they're treated by some as a joke. So this I've heard from police officers that uh, they, they want changes from everything from their, their uniforms to, uh, as Ross was talking about, the, the use of, of force. And I agree also that it's very strange with the, the laws that, or the rules that we seem to have. The day after this um, uh, double killing of the officers, a police officer in New Taipei went up to a KTV where a bunch of uh, you know young hoodlums were fighting outside after getting drunk or something, and they wouldn't get on the ground as he was told. So the officer pulled out his gun and fired three or four shots in the air, and this is in one of the most densely populated places in Taiwan, and that seemed to be okay. But somehow it wouldn't be okay for an officer to pull out his weapon and shoot even to kill someone who has a switchblade in his hand and is charging another officer. So, yes, training is the issue here, but we don't need to become overly reflexive and similar to the murder that happened on a train a few years back where uh, a very deranged individual killed a a police, uh, a train officer. The solution isn't to increase the death penalty or to arm officers with AR-15s or whatever. It's, It's to look at the specifics of this specific situation and see what we can do to change it. And in this case, it certainly is training. And what about the television coverage of the incident, Michael, and the argument that some people want suspects' faces blurred out and others argue, no, don't blur them out, help the police find the suspects? Well, um, I'm going to have to defer that to Ross because he's a lawyer and he would have more training on the issue. This kind of privacy pendulum sometimes swings too far in Taiwan. And anyone who watches the TV news will see the large number of things that are already blurred out often unnecessarily uh, or the 
they won't use a company name when a company is in the news and let's just say some famous uh, and describe the industry that the company is in. Uh, so I, I, th- I think we often take those things a, a little too far. Uh, if someone is a suspect, has been named a suspect by the police, the police are looking for someone. However mistaken the police might be, I, I, I think uh, normally you'd want their image to be publicized so that the public could also notify the police, provide tips if they see the uh, the wanted individual. So I, I, I think it might be a little bit foolish uh, to, to reflexively – to use the our, our word of the day, uh, uh, blur out the image of, of suspects, especially if the suspect has been named by the police. If a person has been wrongly named, there is recourse. Uh, that right, that did happen, the though. The police did initially name the wrong person. Well, again, that that that, that individual uh, would have recourse uh, if if the police were negligent in in, in using his name or or image. So I, I don't think we want to. Um, uh, pun intended, handcuff the police uh, and prevent them from using a, uh, or putting out there. I mean, what are you going to have a, a wanted poster with, with the with the blurred out image? I mean, we expect the police to to do their job and do it properly. And again, if if they put out uh, an incorrect name or image, then th- that individual would would have recourse. But I, I I wouldn't go in. I wouldn't recommend that that direction. I don't think that's a priority in this situation to say that the police uh, shouldn't use the image. And the same would apply to to the. Media. Media, even if it was a suspect not named by the police, uh, the media have standards that they are supposed to adhere to. Okay, they don't always do so. Uh, but if the media were were remiss and sloppy and failed to follow proper internal safeguards, checks, editorial standards, etc., and were to put someone's name or image in media reports as a suspect in a crime, and if they were blatantly wrong and, and remiss in doing so, then again, the individual would have recourse. So I, I don't think that's a direction that, that we, we should go. I, I, I can't help but mention another uh, recurring theme in this situation. It's the Taiwan perp walk which uh, the police also, and uh, they, they won't like me saying this, so Gavin, maybe this will be the last time I'm on your, sh- I'm on your show because I'll get deported. They cannot seem to control the scene, wh- whether it's uh, uh, the, the media congregating in front of a police station or in some cases uh, victims' families or neighbors will, will come and congregate at the police station when they know that the accused has been detained in a, in a local precinct uh, and they, then there's almost a, a mob scene that the police can't seem to control as they parade out the suspect and whether it's media sticking their cameras in the face of the suspects and why did you do it you know, one of those you know really stupid questions or uh, relatives seeking revenge by by trying to assault the suspect uh, I, I, I I'm just so disappointed in the police that they cannot in these situations when they're doing the perp walk, and I get it, they want to do the perp walk because they want to get the photo and show that they're doing their job. Uh, they, they've got to keep people back, keep them back 10, 15, 20 feet. It's not an infringement on press freedom if the media had to be kept back, uh, at least so that they can't be, be in a touching distance where they can actually physically touch the suspect. Um, and the same, again, goes for victims' families. But but that happened again with the perp walk uh, for this individual. So uh, it it's another aspect of training or policing in Taiwan that that no changes to the laws are, are going to remedy. It is a, a training issue and maybe a cultural issue. As Half well. the time the, uh, during the perp walk, the person is wearing a complete full face helmet 
The other half of the time, he's got something half covering his face. It's all very inconsistent and very, uh, yeah, just uh, all over the place. And the fact that the media is allowed to put a, ca- a microphone two inches away from the guy and, and ask him, do you regret murdering so-and-so, is just insane. Yes. And moving on now, and KMT Vice Chairman Andrew Shah was in China this week and meeting with Taiwanese business owners, students and other Taiwanese nationals who live there. But unfortunately, on Wednesday, well, basically earlier this week, the meeting basically happened earlier this week, Shah met with Zhang Zhuajun, the chairman of the Association for Relations across the Taiwan Straits at a dinner in Kunshan City. Now, the KMT had been stress- stressing rather prior to his visit. It was a non-political event, but of course, meeting with Zhang was was slightly political. Now, the KMT says the two sides discussed China's recent military exercises, agricultural product inspection procedures, coronavirus quarantine issues, and the status of the ECFA Accords early harvest list. Now, according to the KMT, Shah expressed the Taiwanese people's dissatisfaction with and concerns about the Chinese military exercises, and he went on to say that farmers, fishermen, and the owners of small and medium-sized enterprises here in Taiwan are concerned about the suspension of the ECFA early harvest harvest list so ross he went to china said he wasn't going to meet any politicos and he did yeah so prior to the trip uh whether uh, on social media or public statements engaging with with the press the Guomindang was very adamant uh the trip is apolitical he won't meet with any uh, uh chinese officials while there and uh, that that has turned out not to be accurate. Uh, and, and if anyone was to suggest that Mr. Zhang is not really an official because he's he's currently the president of, of uh, the, the NGO that uh, nominally deals with Taiwan relations, the Association for Relations Across the Taiwan Strait, the counterpart to Taiwan's Straits Exchange Foundation, uh, they'd be lying because uh, he's, he's clearly a government official, former head of the Taiwan Affairs Office. He's not uh, put into his current job by by popular vote or the members of an NGO or anything like that. He's he's a government official. Uh, So this was just uh, uh, weird. Uh, It's very similar to the Guomindang's current position, if they have one, on the 92 consensus. Uh, Julie Lewin, Eric Drew, the chairman, went to Washington, didn't want to really talk about it in his public speech, then was asked about it in the Q&A and said, oh, it's a consensus without a consensus. And subsequently, uh, Mr. Xia himself has made public statements reaffirming that the party uh, uh, position is still that the 92 consensus is is their, their China policy. Uh, and then this trip as well. It's it's like uh, half-hearted. The timing is is just weird, if not wrong, because he departed after China's military exercises following Pelosi's visit, and uh, even some people within the party who were bold enough to criticize Chairman Zhu uh, did publicly say uh, elected officials, lo- local uh, counselors like that, uh, local officials like that, uh, were, were willing to criticize it. They still went ahead. They said it wouldn't be political. He won't see any uh, meet any officials. He's just going to meet Taiwan business people and understand their problems as if the Guomindang could do anything to help them. You know, the, those business people in China don't need the Guomindang to advocate on their behalf in front of local or, or the central government in China. So that 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 excuse was just weird as well. Uh, that we have this this meeting uh, where Xia uh, 
says that he told Zhang uh, the military exercises kind of aren't popular here in Taiwan. Uh, and then uh, China immediately said, uh, thank you, we're gonna, we're, we'd like to announce some more military exercises. Uh, so the, the, the whole trip is emblematic of, of where things stand or don't stand for the Kuomintang's uh, China policy. Yeah, just another case of the uh, KMT shooting itself in the foot, because actually this is a missed opportunity in my view. So I look at this from the position from southern Taiwan, and uh, they should have learned something from the success of the Hanguoyu campaign. He came down here and he said, Kaohsiung is poor and dirty and a mess, and we need to clean this up. And the people responded by electing him, because he told what they saw as the truth. He was honest. So if the KMT could sometimes just be frank and honest, not that everyone will agree with them, but it would at least provide a position. So, for example, in this case, they would go, yes, we know that the optics look bad. We know that going over there at this time is sensitive. But, you know, when you're at uh, each other's throats, when two people are having a lot of tensions, it's a good idea to have some channels open and to speak. Now, I know Mind Joe and others did say this later, but the KMT was not singing from the same hymnal at the same time. So they could have offered that. They could have also said, uh, we're going over there to talk to a couple officials to keep the uh, um, channels open. And also, we're going over to talk to Taiwanese business people to raise funds for the upcoming uh, November election because we need to get a new government in office that will do a better. They could have used this powerfully in a way. And uh, instead, it came across as, as sneaky and just opened them up to more pro-China bias allegations. So, you know, I supported uh, candidate Obama back when he said he would meet with uh, enemies of America. I supported Trump when he visited uh, uh, dictator Kim because uh, I think that you do sometimes need to talk to, to enemies. So they had an opportunity here if they were all on the same page. But Eric Jude, the chairman, just simply can't seem to get his group together to be saying the same thing and putting out the same message. And in the end, it's just as Ross noted, just a, it turned into a, a, just a debacle, a total mess. So, Ross, do you think that if the KMT had said what Michael said, it would have been a whole lot better for the KMT? Uh, certainly, but they, they don't, as I said earlier, they don't want to take that position that 92 consensus is, is the, the heart of the issue when it comes to China policy or the Kuomintang's China policy. Either it's your policy or it's not. And mm. if it's your policy, then stand by it. Yes. Instead of meandering around it and just explain, as, as Michael was discussing, why you think it's it's the safest policy, uh, the best policy for, for Taiwan-China relations at the moment and you know, win or lose elections on that basis. But but they just they just won't do it. And so we have this meandering around. I'll, I'll add to the list of, of, of Michael's uh, uh, you know, potential justifications that the Gobi Dog could have used for the, the trip. They could have used the old Taiwan trick, which is to say, Tai Yi Shema Shema Shun Fun. You know, he's in, going in some capacity, any capacity but the capacity that we actually know him to be going in. Uh, but the, that, that's also a device that, that's often used here. Like you say, he's going in the capacity as the former mainland affairs uh, 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 chairman here. And he's going to meet old friends in China, including government officials, because when he was a Taiwan government official, he did deal directly with, with Zhang. Uh, so the, the, the idea that he would meet with Zhang, frankly, it's not unusual. Exactly. And, and 
as we've been discussing, you could justify it, but this meandering around the issues, uh, you know, the, as if they're they're just scared of. Uh, who knows what? Scared of voter backlash, scared of criticism from the the DPP. Uh, you know, the latest thing with the Guomindang is to uh, tell Americans and Japanese how we love you and we stand with you on every issue, including China policy, which which none of them really believe. Uh, but uh, if you're going to pursue that, then you shouldn't even have the trip at all. Uh, but if you're going to have Xia going to China and meeting Chinese government officials, then again, you have to tell those Americans, Japanese. Darn right, we think this is a good idea to to have dialogue, and uh, we we disagree with your criticism that we need to stay stay away from China at the moment. But but they just won't take a position. Uh, it might not hurt them in in the upcoming local election, but uh, th- this way of politicking is is not going to win you national elections. Quite ironic to see DPP politicians being the ones telling the KMT to uh, make sure to uh, remind China of the existence of the Republic of China. And uh, being the champions of the ROC, uh, it's just uh, uh, yeah, completely uh, strange situation, surreal. And we have to take a short break now, but we will return after these rather important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week and the Central Epidemic Command Centre's recently appointed head Victor Wong on Monday called on political parties and candidates in November's local elections not to politicise coronavirus prevention efforts. Now that call came after the KMT had been accusing the government of deliberately withholding information on the per-dose price of vaccines and criticising the Ministry of Health for classifying vaccine procurement data as being confidential. Now the KMT had been arguing that as the coronavirus vaccine procurement programme used public funds well, its finances should be made public. Let's see what's wrong with that. Now, the Epidemic Command Centre head held a morning press conference, breaking with the 2pm standard to release some data about the vaccine procurement. Now, according to Wong, vaccine purchases to date have cost an average of 765 NT per dose, with a total of 53.51 million doses purchased and a total cost of 40.86 billion NT. However, he added that it's impossible to provide a complete breakdown of the government's vaccine purchases by brand and citing binding agreements and confidentiality clauses with drug makers. He also defended the government's position on keeping some vaccine procurement details confidential, saying that the practice is common in Europe, Japan and the United States, where only the number of vaccine doses purchased and the total cost are disclosed publicly. And he went on to say that the government is not avoiding lawmakers' supervision over vaccine procurement, noting that the legislative UN has a vaccine procurement review group to oversee such matters. Now, those statements came as the KMT's Taipei mayoral candidate Jung Wen-an was waiting to tell reporters that he previously served as governor of the Legislative Vaccine Procurement Review Group and, well, he said it was denied any concrete data, Ross. Well, this issue has been uh, in the news periodically uh, for over a year, ever since Taiwan initially had trouble acquiring vaccines or procuring vaccines, then received some do- uh, donations from uh, other countries, and then uh, also purchased the locally developed Metagen vaccine. So it's it's not a new issue. Uh, loyal listeners of Taiwan this week will know I frequently have said that there was a flawed vaccine uh, procurement uh, policy. Uh, 
Uh, this is just one of the, the manifestations of that. Another one is the, the, the tens of millions of U.S. dollars uh, of Metagen vaccines that expired and had to be thrown away, which uh, kind of officials just kind of blew off like, well, it's not a big deal. Uh, we did use some of them and, and we'll donate a, a very tiny number to to Paraguay and Somaliland, uh, but, but you know, we've moved on. Right? Nobody's talking about that, which is another, again, another aspect of, of this. Uh, but uh, the government doesn't seem to have very good lawyers or very good negotiating skills if, if the uh, agreements had such lengthy non-disclosure clauses. I, I'm frankly... Uh, uh, I'm quite surprised that the government and disappointed that they would agree. If that's really the case, since we haven't seen uh, even the non-disclosure clause, uh, we don't know what they actually say about the length, uh, the term of, of the non-disclosure uh, clause or what what information can't be disclosed. Uh, I, 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 I would challenge his his suggestion that this is standard all over the world. Again, I think it's a matter of negotiation, and uh, Taiwan just sh- should have done a better job negotiating. If, in fact, there are these draconian non-disclosure clauses, I, I would I would question that. And frankly, we haven't been told the truth about a lot of aspects of of the uh, vaccine acquisition process. So, uh, until I see the clause, I'm not going to assume that that it's been described correctly to the public. Uh, there was the whole controversy that China was blocking Taiwan from buying the Pfizer BNT vaccine, and then really no proof was actually ever provided uh, about that, other than a disagreement over a, a press release, and the deal fell through in the first few months of, of 2021. Uh, but but no proof was ever really pro- uh, provided beyond that that China really blocked Taiwan. When we know the issue was really. Uh, Taiwan just didn't want to spend money with with a company based in China that had the distribution rights for for Taiwan until uh, the, the several NGOs, a couple of them affiliated with with large companies, uh, one affiliated with with the uh, Buddhist charity, stepped in to buy the vaccines, and the government caved in and started buying them as well. Uh, so so there's been a lot of flaws in this process. This is just the latest part part in it. Uh, uh, one thing that really disappointed me in in the uh, official response was when a reporter asked at the press conference can you tell us the the term of the non-disclosure for each of the different products so basically you know can you tell us what what BNT's non-disclosure clause is and can you tell us what Moderna's non-disclosure clause is and what Medigen no, no I can't even tell you that it's confidential uh, that, that that really was as we say in in American English a cop out because I, I, I think he could share that information. So, Michael, I mean, the KMT's argument, as it was v- the vaccine procurement used public money, surely the government should have announced, well, it's public money, this is what we spent, and this is what we spent it on. Weren't we supposed to send the bill for all the vaccines to Foxconn Chairman Terry Gore? No, I kid. But, um, yeah, I am, of course, I think ever, all of us are, are worried uh, to a degree or concerned with the potential for, I don't know, corruption or... Uh, price inflations or whatever uh, other uh, untoward uh, financial issues could have been there. But um, 
in general, I don't know if I agree completely with Ross that uh, it's impossible to uh, accept this argument about the non-disclosure uh, things. I, I, as a non-expert, uh, uh, I'm certainly not a lawyer. It doesn't completely uh, shock me that uh, that would be something that uh, would not be able to be disclosed. Plus, there was some other issue. I think there were they talked about uh, keeping this matter secret for 30 years. I'm interested to know uh, Ross's opinion on whether the overall cost, if it was indeed 760-something NT per vaccine, um, to me that sounds somewhat reasonable. Well, we'd have to compare it to uh, different countries around the world, uh, what they paid uh, uh, for average average cost per per dose, uh, and that's going to vary country to country. I, I I, I think Taiwan, you know, as part of this flawed process, is uh, the, they, they were just slow and a lot of, they didn't put down money quickly. Uh, so, absent more information, we don't know whether or not they actually got a good deal or they got a bad deal. Uh, but they just don't want to talk about it. Uh, I, I think the reason why they don't want to talk about it is. Uh, they probably overpaid compared to some other countries. Uh, we know for a fact it took them a long time to get the vaccines here compared to some other countries. And the the third part that they don't want to talk about is the Medigen aspect, that instead of purchasing the foreign-made vaccines, the, a big bet, literally and figuratively, was placed on the Medigen vaccine, so that the government could say that Taiwan has saved Taiwan and Taiwan has saved the world. And that that was a mistake. Uh, instead of getting vaccines in from other, from Moderna or Pfizer, BNT, uh, a lot of hope but was wasn't placed a well-meaning on mistake. Well, it, was, it may have been well-meaning, but it was completely unnecessary. And the reason why it was unnecessary is not just Medigen, but some of its competitors in the vaccine manufacturing space here in Taiwan were ready, willing, and able to be outsourced manufacturing partners. They have the talent. They have the production lines. They could have just made uh, vaccines for other people. We know how great Taiwan companies are at, at outsourced manufacturing, and, and they, they 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 were interested in doing that. But the government stepped in and said, "No, no, no, no. We we want to champion a locally developed vaccine." Um, with and Medigen was given the opportunity to do that. Uh, I, I think that was another part of this very flawed acquisition process. And of course, Michael, all of this coming out basically summer summer argument. Of course, this is all coming out now simply to attack the DPP's Taipei mayoral candidate, former Health Minister Chen Shijong. Definitely, yeah. It's uh, it, it's going to be used. Uh, they're, they're looking for pretty much anything against him because uh, it's going to be a very exciting uh, race when you've got a, a three-way. Uh, contest coming up here and uh, it's very hard to say but uh, Chen stands a chance actually of uh, taking Taipei he really does so uh, they're going to throw whatever they can at him as I would if I was on that side and of course Ross do you think this we'll hear more about what happened with the Medigen in the coming months as as the election closes in and more dirt so to speak could possibly come out Uh, unlikely because uh, or uh, let me answer your question a different way even if there was more dirt or just allegations, negative allegations. Uh, the the Kuomintang, and to a lesser extent, the Taiwan People's Party, which lately tags along with this kind of uh, mudslinging, uh, they, they're not really good at 
making it stick, uh, you know, similar to what we were talking about with trying to explain their vice chairman's trip to China. At the moment, it's just not their strength to convince the public and voters that uh, the other side, the, the DPP, are doing a bad job and we could do a better job. And Oh, and here's one of the things they've done a bad job. I, it, it appeals to the, to people who would vote for the Kuomintang anyway. Agreed. But, but whether they can make these kinds of arguments in an articulate and convincing way for the portion of the public that might, might be in the middle and could vote either way. Uh, I, again, I, I think the Kuomintang is, is, is very bad at that. You know, they, they kind of had one uh, victory for lack of a better description, recently with, with the plagiarism allegations against the, the DPP's Taoyuan city mayoral candidate, Lin, Lin Jijian. And the, the accusations were upheld now by two different universities that, that his two different master's uh, thesis uh, were, had significant uh, plagiarism. But that's not really any great uh, uh, work by the Kuomintang part uh, on their part, and and, and frankly, uh, in the polls right before he stepped aside, he actually wasn't trailing very far behind the Kuomintang's candidates. So this issue wasn't really resonating with the voters. Uh, it's just you know, the universities came out and said, well, you know, you plagiarized, so he, you know, he had no choice but to step. Step aside, uh, and there's a lot of speculation that even the, the original source of this information wasn't a Kuomintang politician. It was a, a DPP politician who was unhappy about not being the nominee. Uh, so again, uh, I, I, would, I would expect more stuff, uh, but I, I'm not optimistic that the Kuomintang has the ability to, to make it stick. And the new Ministry of Digital Affairs is set to come into being in the coming hours. It's being headed by Minister Without Portfolio and Minister of Digital Affairs, Audrey Tung. Now, the government says it will be tasked with accelerating digital infrastructure to enable data-driven collaboration in multiple domains, promote data sharing in the private sector for public benefit, and link Taiwan to the world by cultivating digital literacy, which will deepen democracy. So, Michael, another another government ministry here. Right. Um, So the concerns that I have noticed being expressed in the press and also by people I've spoken to are related to privacy. They don't want, you know, some sort of Edward Snowden type uh, spying uh, apparatus uh, on Taiwan. But uh, mostly, most people that I've talked to seem to agree that we do need some control over the Internet when you have a neighbor, a large neighbor that is constantly waging disinformation campaigns and wars uh, against the island. And uh, we, we do need to do something about uh, controlling uh, the interspace, so to speak. So the only thing that I've noted that some lawmakers have called for that I think I support, I would have to look at it a little bit more closely, but the EU has uh, some pretty specific privacy guidelines that they've put into place that seem to me, at least on the surface of it, to be a, a model that perhaps we should consider following for this new Ministry of Digital Affairs. I think Taiwan already has robust uh, data privacy laws and regulations. I don't think we, we need more. Uh, I, I don't think this has been sold clearly to the public why uh, a ministry that wasn't established too long ago, the Ministry of Science and Technology, which had the great acronym of MOST, uh, apparently MOST was not the mostest, and uh, some of the functions had to be separated between the digital ministry and 
what's now National Science and Technology Council, or I'm, I'm going to call it the, the NASTC. You know, it's, it's just going to be nasty. And why is it going to be nasty? Is because nobody really understands except the bureaucrats who dream this stuff up and you know, sort of waste taxpayer money on, the, on reorganizing uh, ministries and councils. Maybe they know what it's going to do. I don't think the public really knows or industry really understands what, what, what the, the separation of, of duties is. I mean, nominally, uh, the, the council will, will promote research and kind of set the policy direction for, for industry or academia, re- academic research in, in, in related areas, which, which ultimately supports industry. Uh, and, and as Michael indicated, the ministry might get involved in some regulatory stuff, but I, I think we have enough regulatory uh, stuff already in, in the digital space. I, I don't think we need to recreate the ministry. And this whole democracy thing, this is this is this has been like a pet project for for uh, Audrey Tong throughout her career in public life and, and in government. You know, there's some, some kind of... There, there, there's something between digital and democracy and they, they go together. And uh, I know it gets her on TV and it gets her uh, interviews with foreign media a lot. So the government loves that because she goes goes to an interview or she joins some forum overseas um, the last couple of years, usually virtually, not in person, uh, and talks about digitalization and democracy and the, the China's hacking us and it, it all sounds really nice and it gets good PR for for the Taiwan government uh, but what it ra- actually means for for us <laughs> the person who uh, you know, the average person who uh, uses the internet every day it's not really clear to me well, China is hacking us. Uh, we we know that as a fact. I know, but we, we didn't we didn't need to we didn't need to reorganize the ministries to tell us that China is hacking. Nor did we need to reorganize the ministries to respond to that. Okay, but instead we spent a whole bunch of. Imagine how much money has been spent on signage and stationery. Uh, when, when, when the Ministry of Science and Technology was created not very long ago, and now to separate these the, these uh, agencies, you know, we're, we're just wasting a lot of time and money on, on silly stuff instead of just letting letting these agencies, once they've been created, do their job. I mean, it's almost like from the moment that the Ministry of Science and Technology was, was – Created, someone's been thinking about how to blow it up. Why does this make sense? Do you think, Michael, possibly President Tsai Ing-wen could have simply made Audrey Tang the science minister? Yeah, I, I can see the, the the logic in Ross's argument for the you know uh, a smaller government and, and wastefulness. Yes, but uh, I do uh, echo the concerns of others who uh, think we need a bit more robust defense. Uh, internet-wise, because of uh, some of the things that I've even personally seen uh, related to our relationship with our neighbor. So, um, uh, unfortunately, if this uh, if it's a waste of money, that's uh, that is too bad. But um, I do want I want more robust internet uh, defenses and faster internet. That would be nice too. <laughs> yeah, especially where I live. And before we go this week, the Michelin Guide released its latest list of bid, bib rather, gourmand restaurants in Taiwan on Tuesday. It features 141 eateries, and along with those in Taipan, Taichung, it also includes Tainan and Kaohsiung for the first time this year. Now, the bib gourmand list restaurants give it a distinction, basically, for offering a three-course meal for a fixed price not exceeding 1,000 NT. Now, the list has been released ahead of the full Michelin Guide Taipei, Taichung, Tainan and Kaohsiung 2022, and apparently it includes establishments offering Taiwanese, Chinese, Vietnamese and 
and other types of cuisine. Now, this selection covers 57 restaurants and night market stalls in Taipei, 37 in Taichung, 27 in Tainan, and 20 in Kaohsiung, Michael, where you are. Right. So I think Ross and I are slightly uh, not the best people to be talking about uh, all of Taiwan's uh, delicacies because I believe he's a committed vegan where I am a mostly vegetarian for the past uh, 20 years or so. But I did once uh, enjoy uh, the foods of Tainan and Kaohsiung uh, some 20 years ago. And uh, no offense to Taipei or Taichung, but southern Taiwanese food is just better. And <laughs> that's uh, my, my opinion and also probably the opinion of a lot of other people too. So I was a little disappointed when I saw them get Taichung on the list last year, but not come further south. So Tainan is the cradle of non-indigenous Taiwanese civilization. It was the capital of Taiwan for uh, X hundreds of years, and um, the food there is awesome. And yeah, it's about time. Kaohsiung, on the other hand, has a unique blend of uh, Taiwanese uh, Hakka, military village food, um, fusion, aboriginal, uh, just we have kind of a, a nice collection of everything, and uh, it's uh, although this is the minor league, so to speak, of the Michelin Guide, um, yeah, it's about time that they recognize that there's more food than uh, is in the Taipei Sherlin Night Market or wherever. Uh, well, maybe when the pandemic is over, there, there might be some tourists, who, more tourists who come back to Taiwan and will read this guide and, and, and visit uh, the, the, the places that are named in there. Uh, I can't help but saying, though, based on some past experience with these things in Taiwan, there always seems to be a few years later, like the weird, the weird news will come out. It'll give us something to talk about, like uh, the, the 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 restaurants or the stalls that don't want to be the guide that you know, they they battle with with the guidebook to, to be removed. And the guidebook says, "Well, anyone could just walk in," and you know, that the the venue owner threatens to sue. And you know, there were there was incidents of that uh, recently with, with guidebooks. Uh, there'll, there'll be the knockoff restaurants. Uh, they, they try to claim to be the one that that's named in the guide, or, or it'll be like the cousin or the brother of, of the original. Uh, so uh, I, I expect this will create some, some entertaining uh, uh, news down the road once the guides are, are uh, published and popularized and read. And that's where we have to leave it here this week on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Ross Feingold. Have a great weekend. And from Kaohsiung by Michael Smith. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favorite podcast app where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.